I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, hopefully you do, to the book of Titus. We are in the midst of our series entitled Setting Us Straight, as we have talked about in the last uh, several weeks, as we have looked within the Scripture, and we see that this book was written by the Apostle Paul as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit of God to Titus, who was pastoring on the island of Crete. And it was not the ideal pastoral situation. Uh, this church was just rife with, uh, had false teachers, you had people usurping authority, you had uh, drunks and gluttons and just people being lazy and gossips. And it was just, in some ways, a picture of modern-day society. Because all of us have that tendency to uh, give ourselves over to certain sins. And Paul writes to Titus to set things straight within this church. He talks about appointing the right leaders. He talks about the roles of men and women, older men and younger men, and older women and younger women. And last week, Pastor Andrew talked about, he did talk a little bit about slaves, but he was just comparing it more to the workplace. And I was so glad that he did. He has so much experience in it. I really benefited from a lot of his insights. And I want to thank him again for, uh, for preaching for us and sharing his gift. But today, we are moving in to one of the most difficult topics that I've ever preached on myself. I'm sure that many other pastors may not feel that way, uh, but this is a topic that I have wrestled with for years, and I've preached hundreds, if not, uh, and, and written a lot of different articles on many different subjects. I mean, I've talked about, uh, you know, faith. I've talked about the Old Testament and how the two Testaments go together. We've talked about works. We've talked about, I mean, I've preached on the spiritual gifts. I've preached on pretty much anything I can think of, the blood, covenant, uh, creation, but this topic, so essential and key to the Christian faith, is one that still mystifies me the older that I get, and it's the concept of grace. I am blown away by grace and how God could give grace to us. It's a mystery to me. I mean, I've taken the classes, I've read books, I've sat in, in courses under professors, I've heard great explanations that try to propositionally put what grace is, but somehow that's a little bit, to me, almost like dissecting a frog. You, you might find all the parts, but you kill, the, kill it in the process. Grace is hard to define for myself. I mean, I can give you a, a definition. It's God's unmerited gift given to us by Christ. It's an unmerited gift. That's easy. But it's understanding the application of grace that I, of which, with which I struggle. And I think many Christians do. I mean, we, we talk about being saved by grace, but then we live as if we're saved by works. We're always trying to get God's approval somehow. Oh, I didn't... And we live with this constant concept of guilt in our lives. And guilt just kills us. We think, oh, I didn't have a quiet time, or I'm not reading my Bible, and God just is mad at me, and He hates me. Now, yes, we are to nourish our walk with Jesus, but that's not what saves us. I, I saw, I uncovered another definition of grace I'd like to share with you. It's not on your notes, but it's God will never love you any more, and God will never love you any less. That's pretty radical. If you let that seep in for a moment. God will never love you any more than He does right now. And He will never love you any less. But that is because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. That is made available for Jesus' atoning work. That He satisfied the wrath of God. He took what was deserving us. 
upon himself and then gave you his unmerited favor. That's radical. You know, there was a, a debate several years ago, and we're going to get to our text here in a moment, uh, at Oxford University. It was Oxford or Cambridge, I can't remember which. And all these different leaders had gathered, and they were debating the intricacies and the differences with all the religions of the world. And they were trying to figure out what was, what was the main contribution that Christianity had uh, above and apart from all the different religions of the world whether it's Islam, whether it's Judaism, or Jainism, or Zoroastrianism, or uh, any type of uh, Confucianism, or Taoism, or any of these different faiths, when C.S. Lewis wandered in, and he saw the commotion, and he said, what's going on? And they explained it to him. And they said, well, what, what do you think it is, the, the difference that Christianity has to offer over, over and against all the religions of the world? He goes, well, that's easy. Great. Great. The radical concept of God's grace. And as I stand at this ocean of teaching, looking out, I am bewildered because I can't see the horizon of God's grace. It goes far beyond my eye. And it plunges far deeper than I could ever hope to go. I know that grace has changed my own life in many radical ways. But today I invite us all to turn the book of Titus and see what God has to show each of us as we read and study his word. We're in the book of Titus, chapter 2 in the New Testament. Hopefully you will turn there with me. I would invite you all to stand with me for the honor of reading God's word together. We're in Titus, chapter 2. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, reading from verse 11 through verse 15. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you seeking to understand this wonderful gift of grace. Lord, so often we live with guilt. Free us from it. Help us to see that our salvation is not dependent on what we do, but in responding to what you've already done and living in life and that knowledge. Lord, I pray that you might peel away the layers of unbelief, any hardness of sin, that we might see and behold you, the one true God, and embrace this loving, amazing, life-giving concept of grace that was afforded to us by Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's death on the cross. We thank you and we praise you. And we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Grace as I mentioned before, it's hard to define. Perhaps it's better to be illustrated. And I, I found a film that probably many of us aren't familiar with that dynamically illustrates the concept of grace. Done in 1987, it was based upon uh, a, a, a book, actually, and a story, and it's entitled Babette's Feet. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not. It's a foreign language film. And it's set in Denmark in the uh, 19th century, 1871. 
to be precise. And this film begins with a portrait of two elderly and pious Christian sisters. And these sisters, named, one named Martine, named after Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, and her sister Philippa, named for Martin Luther's friend and biographer, Philip Melanchthon, live in a small village on the remote and beautiful but also barren and chilly western coast of Denmark in the 19th century. Philippa and Martine are the daughters of a pastor who had founded his own Christian sect. And though the pastor had long since himself died and the sect draws no new converts, these aging sisters preside lovingly over their dwindling brood of white-faced, rural, resident believers. Now the story does a flashback in time to these sisters when they were younger. And they were beautiful. I mean, gorgeous sisters. And each one is courted by many young men that would visit Denmark. Martine was courted by a charming but dissolute young officer of the Swedish cavalry named Lorenz. And Philippa by a recuperating star baritone of the Paris Opera. A man... Uh, by the name of Papal. And he had heard her even sing as he got to know her and found out she had an amazingly God-given voice to sing the praises of God. And he said, come with me to Paris. Marry me. I will make you a star and all of Paris will fall at your feet. But each one, they refused every quarter. They wanted to stay and support their aging father in this sect. Many years later, when the sisters have aged a bit, they're in their 50s, a young girl, or a girl, a woman, by the name of Babette, appears at their door. She carries only a letter from Philippa's former suitor, that the singer in the Paris Opera, explaining she's a refugee from counter-revolutionary bloodshed in Paris, and he was recommending her as a housekeeper for these two sisters. They take her in. They try to explain to her how to not only be a housekeeper, but a cook cooking uh, Danish cuisine. They show her how to diff- cut different fish, and she would kind of repulse at that because she was French. The French have their own taste. But nevertheless, she did it. Her only link to her former life is a lottery ticket that a friend in Paris renews for her every year. And one day, after 14 years, she wins the lottery. And she gets 10,000 francs, which would surely allow her to return to her former home in adequate style. However, she instead decides to use the money to prepare a delicious dinner for the sisters in the small congregation on the occasion of the founding pastor's 100th birthday. And more than just an Epicurean delight, the feast is an outpouring of Babette's appreciation, an act of self-sacrifice with Eucharistic echoes. Though she doesn't tell anyone, Babette is spending her entire winnings on this gesture of gratitude. She has food shipped in from France and fine china and tableware. It is a a luxurious feast set for 12 people. The sisters reluctantly agree to accept Babette's meal and her offer to pay for the creation of a real French dinner. She hadn't asked for anything in the entire duration of time that she was there except to do this one act for them. After she brings all of the different items in, 
seeing how plentiful they are. They're sumptuous, sumptuous and exotic, and their arrival causes much discussion among the village. As the various never-before-seen ingredients arrive and preparations commence, the sisters begin to worry what the meal will be like, and at best, uh, it could be a great sin of sensual luxury, and at worst, some form of delvery or witchcraft in their mind. In a hasty conference, the sisters and the congregation agree to eat the meal, but to forgo any pleasure in it, and to make no mention of the food during the entire dinner. The last and most relevant part of the film is the preparation and the serving of an extraordinary banquet of royal dimensions, lavishly deployed in the unpainted austerity of the sisters' rustic home. The film, previously showing many winterly whites and grays, gradually picks up more and more color as the film progresses, focusing on the various and delectable dishes, a feast for the spectator as well. Now, Martine's former suitor, this young military cavalry officer, is now a famous general, and he'd married to a member of the, the Queen's Court, comes and returns to visit an aunt who is part of the sect. He's unaware of the other guest austere plans, and as a man of the world and former attaché in Paris, he is the only person at the table qualified to comment on the meal. He provides guests with these abundant explanations and explicit information about the extraordinary quality of the food and drink. Every uh, next dish and entree comes in. He tastes and he can't. He just uh, has this overflow of praise of how wonderful and delicious it is. He's the only one there that can truly appreciate it while all of the guests are just quiet and unassuming, not saying anything. He says that this feast reminds him strongly of a similar fare he has enjoyed many years before at the famous Café Anglais in Paris. He describes how the, ch- the chef there was renowned for her extraordinary culinary skills. And his commentary culminates in a brief, reflective speech based on Psalm 85. He stands up and addresses all of the guests, and he says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed one another. Although the other celebrants do their best to reject the earthly pleasures of the food and drink, Babette's extraordinary gifts as the chef and a true connoisseur, so characteristically French, breaks down their distrust and superstitions, elevating them not only physically but spiritually. Old wrongs are forgotten. Relationships that had, had, been, uh, had just been a haven of bitterness and unforgiveness are now reconciled at this table. People that hadn't spoken in decades now start to talk and enjoy one another's company. And this warmth comes over the table in the meal that is just totally amazing. And the description says that at the table, at this mundane celebration, shadows, infinite grace that had been allotted to them, and they did not even wonder at the fact for it had been the fulfillment of an ever-present hope. The menu responsible for their pleasure features many rare and scrumptious delicacies, prompted numerous gesticulations of praise from the general. He couldn't stop praising. He couldn't keep silent. And after the meal, after everyone has gone home, the two sisters are there, and Babette sits in the kitchen, surrounded by the enormous pile of dishes, exhausted at what happened. The sisters now assume that Babette will now return to Paris with her lottery winnings. And when she tells them that all of her money is gone, she's not going anywhere. The sisters are aghast. 
Babette then tells him that the dinner for 12 at the Café Anglais had a price of 10,000 francs, and that's exactly what she purchased. Her purchase of the finest china, flatware, crystal, and linen with which to set the table ensures that the luxurious food and drink is served in a style worthy of Babette, who is none other than that famous former chef at the café. Babette's previous occupation had been unknown to the sisters until she confides in them after the meal. See, that's great. Grace cost the purchaser everything. It cost Babette everything. No one knew who she was. And she gave everything to treat them. And many of them just sat there unaware of the gigantic feast that they had before them. Except one man. See, many of us don't realize that it costs the Son of God everything, His life, to give us something. And many of us go on in our Christian life failing to understand what we have been given. The gift that we have been given. The, the, uh, the Gospel, or First Peter talks that, he says that the prophets of old long to understand our day. That God Himself would dwell among us. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that God would dwell among men. And we see pictures of it within the, the tabernacle. God's Shekinah glory would come down and dwell among men. And then we see it more fully in the temple. And now He comes within us. And that is only afforded by Christ's death on the cross for you and me, that God gives His Spirit to you and gives you this gift of salvation that is far beyond what we could possibly understand. And many of us just go on our merry way, never understanding or coming to the conclusion or coming even to any type of ability to even fathom this wonderful grace of God that is afforded to us. Now why is this grace so amazing? And I'd like us to turn back to the text. We're going to go through this piece by piece. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now the question is, is what's keeping us from God? What brings salvation? Obviously it's Christ, but He came to save us from something. And what was that? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, correct? The Apostle Paul, though, said uh, in his letter to Timothy, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, we all have the disease of sin. We inherit it from our parents, and not only do we have this sinful nature, this old flesh, but we choose to sin on a regular basis. And that keeps us from God, from having a right relationship with God. Our sin does. But see, Christ appeared to put away sin by the offering of Himself, His body on our behalf. See, this grace has appeared as, as enabled us to have, or have freedom from the penalty of sin. That's the first point in your notes if you're following along. This grace enables us to have to be free or saved from the penalty of sin. We don't have to pay that price any longer. I'm amazed when I when I see different foreign countries and how people will beat themselves in order to pay for the price of their own sin. Young uh, Native Americans, there's been even tribal ceremonies where they will take eagle talons and they will have them tied to their flesh and then they will run as fast as they can until it tears their skin away because they're trying to atone for their own sin. Or even Martin Luther, before he discovered a salvation by faith alone, he would crawl up the Vatican steps on his knees 
I mean, people in different countries will walk on their hands and knees in order to somehow gain acceptance and pay the price for what they've done. God said, no, 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 the price has been paid. I'm giving you a gift. And we want to earn it then. Somehow we want to pay for it. No, no, I'll pay for it. And you can't. The price has been paid. God has given you the gift of grace. Christ Jesus. And salvation through His name. Verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. As Paul speaks of grace saving us from the penalty of sin, uh, he speaks of the appearing of this salvation. For the grace of God has appeared. The word used here, to appear, it's passive. It means to be made clear. We didn't do anything about it. It came to us. It was made manifest. It was as if we were sitting there and the curtain was drawn back that we could see it. That God graciously made it appear to us. The essential meaning of the word, though, is to appear suddenly. It's used particularly of divine interposition. Especially aid in the dawning of light upon darkness. It's similar to what uh, old Simeon said once he saw the baby Jesus in the temple. He took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It's the same picture there. That light has come in the middle of darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He comes into the darkness and He permeates it. Salvation now appears. We see it. We're able to comprehend it by the grace of God. Christ is a light for revelation because He is the light of the world, John 8, 12. The grace of God has appeared, but what does it do? Look back at your text. It brings salvation for all people. Now the word for salvation, soterios, means saving, delivering, bringing salvation. Followed by the dative, it means bringing deliverance to, to all men. It shows the universal scope of what has been offered. Now the question is, is what does this mean in text? This is a very debated verse. In studying this, there are seven different interpretations on what this means. I'm not going to go through all of them with you. Some of them required more initials behind my name than I have in order to explain it to you. Uh, And I have no idea how to explain it very well. I'm not sure if I understand it myself. But I'm looking at it just in context. If God opens His Word to us, study to show ourselves approved, He will open and illuminate His Word. So we must look at the context. Look back, if you will, at the beginning of chapter 2. We see that Paul has told Titus to address older men. And then he tells him to address older women. And then he tells him to address younger men and then younger women. And then he talks about slaves. And then immediately in the next paragraph, he talks about, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, does that mean everybody's going to be saved? Is that what's being intended here? No, obviously not. The Bible says that some, I mean, only some will be saved. Broad is the pathway to destruction. And narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And few find it. Few. Not many. Few. So it can't mean universalism, that everybody's going to be saved. Only some will be saved. What's it mean then? Well, this is where the context pays off. He's talking about all different types of people. He's talking about older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and slaves. 
Everybody within society. It is an echo of Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. That salvation is not just for the Jews anymore. The Gentiles have been grafted in. These are non-Jews. Born Gentiles. That's who a Gentile is, if you didn't know. These are people that are not Jewish. Not born into this family. The Jew is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then particularly then the descendant, his fourth son named Judah. That's the term Jew. The first time the word Hebrew appears is in a reference to the word uh, to Abraham before he becomes Abraham in the book of Genesis. So you have kind of a combination of terms that's going on there. So it's a descendant, part of that family that was born, you were born into it, or you converted to it. But here he's saying, no, 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 no. We have been grafted into God's saving plan of salvation that started in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 that was drawn out, this promise, it extends into Genesis 9, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 18, and every time God expands this promise and shows that it's not just meant for one race, but through that one race, all the nations of the earth would be blessed because it would come to fruition in Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew 1 is so important. Matthew 1 goes through the genealogy of Jesus. And for those of us who don't come from Jewish backgrounds, we usually, and begat, and begat, where's chapter 2? It's hard, because we don't know the names. And that's fine. But if we were to stop and look at it and study it a little bit, we would see that what the author was doing, the Holy Spirit was speaking through Matthew and showing him piece by piece how this one Messiah descended from this promise really an amazing thing to study. That God's promise was promised so long ago and came to fruition in Christ. Available to us. So it's available to all types of people. Jews, Gentiles, all have been brought in to God's saving plan. It's amazing. It's really amazing. It doesn't matter about how you were born. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you have money or not. It doesn't matter if you, if you have you graduated from high school or barely got a GED. It doesn't matter. It's available to everybody. It doesn't matter about your color. It doesn't matter about your race. It doesn't matter about anything else. God has made it available to everybody. Isn't that amazing? Man, it's amazing grace. Boy, I shop so much. I get so excited. It's amazing. It blows me away. The availability of this salvation, this gr- the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now let's break this down a little bit further. Look at verse 12. Training us. Some translations say teaching us to renounce ungodliness. Now the word here is pedouosa, which has its root, uh, at its root the word pedo. What's a, a child doctor called? Pediatrician. Pedi- it's the same form of the word, meaning uh, the training of children. A pediatrician is a child doctor, and here the word is a present act of participle, and it means to train by dis- discipline, to train a child to instruct, but with a purpose. And that there's another clause that's introduced here, and the participle introduces this purpose of training. Training, in, to re- training us to renounce ungodliness. It, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. What's ungodliness? It's the rejection of all that is reverent and has to do with God. See, not only does this grace free us 
or appear to us, and uh, this grace gives us the availability of salvation, but it also frees us from the power of sin. We can just say no. Remember that in the, in the late 90s? For those who kind of grew up in the just say no to drugs, now we can just say no to sin. We have the ability just to say no now. Because the, the tie, the chain that held us to sin, we don't have to do it any longer. Because Christ paid that price. The book of 2 Corinthians explains it very well. For God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So God made Him who had no sin. Jesus was perfect. He was our high priest. He had no sin. But yet He identified with us. See, that's the amazing part of the incarnation that I've been writing about in the tool shed recently. The incarnation is so amazing and, and so essential. Christ had to be born of a virgin. Did you know that? Sometimes we overlook that fact. People say, well, if he wasn't born of a virgin, it wouldn't matter. Oh, it matters a lot. Because as David says, for in sin my mother did conceive me. Not that he was the result of fornication or adultery or anything like that, meaning that he inherited a sinful nature from his parents. That's why it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Sin is a word that points back in time that has a continuing result, meaning that we were born sinners, but we say if we're born sin, then what, how can we help ourselves? And that's why the, 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 the verse goes on to say, for all have sinned and fall short. Presently, we still choose to sin. So we're sinners by nature, and then we're sinners by choice. See, so Christ, what God did, is had God, He assumed flesh by entering into Mary, so she had one human parent. And how, in some mystery of God, Christ escaped the original sin that we have, but still was able to identify with us by having a human parent. See, He had to be divine as well, because we have sinned in the face of an infinite God, which requires us to pay an infinite penalty. We can't pay the price of an infinite God, as we've talked about many times in the past. When we sin or hurt someone, let's look at it from an earthly perspective, we are to receive the due penalty for the action in which we have done. Now let me explain that, and I've, I've used this illustration many different times. But, but if I were to punch a homeless guy in Chicago, how much of a penalty would I receive? Probably not much, just being honest. Now if I were to walk up and, and punch one of Chicago's finest police officers, I'm in serious trouble. The Chicago Police Department does not take that very lightly. But what that means then is I'm not only hitting the Chicago police officer, I am hitting what he represents, which is justice. And in some due respect, I'm hitting every police officer. I am hitting the enforcer of law and justice himself. And I'm going to receive a penalty because of the value placed upon him within society. That's why to hurt a police officer, you get a greater penalty, do we not? Now, if I were to go up and punch the President of the United States, whether you like him or not, some people might applaud and others might cry, but we're not going to go there. But if I were to do that, or let's put it this way, if I was from a foreign country and I did that, would you be insulted? Whether you're for him or against him, you would probably say, wait a minute, that's still the President of the United States. And then you're not just punching him, you're punching all of us. And you're going to receive a penalty according to what you have done how great the value is placed upon him. Now, let's take it up one more notch. Let's pretend that we punched God in the face. What would be the penalty? 
Let's consider who God is. He's love, the very definition. He's infinite. He goes on forever. He's eternal. He has no beginning and no ending. He's justice, the very definition thereof. He is perfect. He is holy, entirely set apart. He is far beyond our comprehension. So that means that to sin in the face of God, which is almost like punching him in the face, it's saying, I don't want you, God. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Get away from me. Requires us then to have an infinite, eternal, just penalty. Which is eternal separation from God. That's why hell is necessary. So Christ, the infinite Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, steps into temporality, assuming flesh upon himself, the infinite Son of God pays a price that has infinite worth to satisfy the wrath of God. That's the mystery of the incarnation. He had to have been born of the earth. And he had to be God. The God-man. 100% God. 100% man. Incarnate. Can you imagine spending time seeing that little baby boy in that manger. The book of Philippians says that he emptied himself. He, he became nothing. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. We're treading on holy ground. And God could do that. Why? Because of his love for us. This grace has appeared. Christ is that ultimate there. It's appeared bringing salvation for all men. And He came to free us, not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Now what does this freedom involve? Let's look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. Now the word that's used here is strong desire. Lust. Strong desire, lust. So it frees us from these lusts that we deny. We all have them. The book of James chapter 1 says that each one of us is tempted by our own sinful desires. We all have sinful desires that come out in different ways. If I were to look into the, the depth of your heart and see it all, I would see your sin rather quickly. God does. He sees the sins in which you struggle. You might struggle with one sin while someone else struggles with another. And you may not understand it in another person. You don't understand why a certain person may sin the way that they do. But yet they don't understand the way that you sin the way that you do. I remember talking with my wife about this one time as we were discussing a friend of ours who was struggling with anorexia and bulimia. As a man, it's very hard for me to understand. And then my wife, who's very familiar with my own sin, she says, but yet she doesn't understand how you can struggle with the sin that you do. It's the same thing. It's all about control and wanting something different than what God wants for you. Very wise. Very wise. So this grace trains us, comes alongside us as a tutor to help us, help us to renounce ungodliness, and worldly passions, these lusts that war against our soul. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 warns us of this. Do not love the world or the things in the world, these worldly passions. If anyone loves the world, this fallen system that is at war against God, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, 
and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For James chapter 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is very important in, this, in James chapter 4, verse 5. He says this, Or do you suppose it is, a, it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? God wants us for Himself. And this is very important, verse 6 of, of James chapter 4. But He gives more grace. He gives grace. When we give ourselves over to the world, He gives grace. Where sin abounds, no matter how great sin is, grace abounds all the more. Grace always abounds. It's amazing. No matter what sin we've done, God's grace is greater. Some of us can't fathom that. I was just reading a book this past week about grace, and they were talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. Remember Jeffrey Dahmer? I mean, the man who killed young boys. I'm not even going to describe what he did. He just remember, I mean, all the things that he did was atrocious and horrible. And, and apparently, while he was in prison, he came to know Christ. He was attending church, and he was a regular, I mean, he was in the Word. God had come into his life, and as they're interviewing him, the chaplain is sitting right there, and he's explaining his conversion and what led him down the path of destruction. He said, there was nothing to stop me. There was no one to stop me. I just kept getting more and more, giving more into his desires, and they became more and more dark and more and more perverse. And it just led him down this, this horrible downward spiral of destruction. And nevertheless, God's grace appeared to him. And some people say, he's beyond forgiveness. No one is beyond God's forgiveness. See, when we say that it's so atrocious, well, we fail to realize and understand how bad of a stench our sin has in the nostrils of God. We might see ourselves as not that bad, but God still sees rebellion. God's forgiveness is so much greater. Sin abounds, grace comes along. Because of what Jesus did, it's so much greater than any of our sins. That's why it's so amazing. So amazing. He gives more grace. Why does God give more grace? Because grace trains us. Enables us to say, no. We think, oh, I I did it wrong. You're going to hate me now. I give grace. You ever done that? You sin and you're like, God doesn't want me anymore. I used to get so sorrowful over my sin and I didn't know if it was godly sorrow or I was making it up. And I was just trying to be sorrowful so God would forgive me. Then I started understanding grace. And then I was really sorrowful. Not because I earned it, because I started to realize what Jesus had already done. We must make sure that we don't keep others from experiencing grace. As the author of Hebrews stated, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that it, and it may become defiled. This grace goes further, though, in just training us to say no to sin, but it also trains us on to live the life that God desires. Look at verse 12 again. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present, present age. To renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and teaching us to live self-controlled, to live righteously, godly, relevant. There's a sense of urgency here. Not to put it off. The present age. Now. Presently. Not in the future. I've seen so many people say, I'm not ready yet. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. 
God says very clearly in His Word, Behold, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. To put it off is to put off God's invitation. That's not a good invitation to put off. Someone sends you an invitation, you might say, Ah, well, maybe, maybe not. When God sends you an invitation, don't rip it up and throw it away. Don't ignore it. He's offering it to you. It's amazing. There's a note of urgency here. We can't put it off. It's not for the future. It's for now. Paul wants us to, to learn how to control and handle ourselves during times of temptation. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is providing everything for you. Think about it. He's providing everything. You don't have to earn it. He's provided you the tools. He's cut the chains. He's even showed you what to appropriate to do it. It's our responsibility then to take that up and do it. We are able to say no. We're no longer tied to this sin. God will, no, will not love us anymore and He will not love us any less. Now, by appropriating and realizing in our mind, in our spirit, that God's grace is readily available to us, we are free to pursue now the lifestyle we desire in God. The life, we can live life, a life now that is pleasing to God, in other words. We can do what God wants us to do. We are freed. I, I am so thankful for this study that we're doing in our adult Bible fellowship in the, the tale of two sons that Pastor Andrew has been leading. It has been amazing to me. The story of the prodigal son. We're, I think every one of us are aware of it. It's known as the, probably the greatest short story ever told. And it's the story of the young man who goes off. He, he tells his father he wants to divide the inheritance up while he's still in the house, which is just basically saying, I wish you were dead. I want my money. What's coming to me? His father gives it to him. He goes off to a foreign land, blows it all on frivolous pursuits of the world, but once the money is gone, the friends are gone. And then, then a, a famine comes along in the land. He's forced to work with pigs. Remember, it's a Jewish story. Pigs are unclean to Jews. So he is the, the most humiliated that you could possibly be, that he is finally longing for the pods, the husks that are there, because the pigs are eating better than he is. These unclean animals, he's eating... I mean, he's, he's longing for that food, and he realizes how good he had it in his dad's house, how great it was. So he says he's all dirty and nasty, and he goes back to his father, and he's rehearsing his repentance speech because he is definitely sorrowful. And he comes along his father, and his father, who's looking for him, that's what I love. He's looking for him. He's looking off in the horizon. Now, you have no idea what this meant to a, uh, someone in the Middle East. His son had shamed him publicly. This is a, a shame culture. Everyone in the community knew it. And here this young man comes back, and you can see him walking along, and you can hear almost the gossip going on, and the people are whispering, Ooh, what's his dad going to do now? Wow, he's back. He's going to have some humble pie right now. He better get on his knees and be prepared to work this out. I mean, he's got some major repentance to do. And, 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 you know, the, people want to do that. We want to put all the prescriptions on repentance. I, I'm thinking of a story. I can't remember which pope it was, but one pope required the emperor to repent. Uh, and what he, he had to do is he had to stand outside of the Vatican walls 
in snow like today for three days barefoot is a sign of his repentance. That's not what God does. Especially here, you see the Father do something amazing. He starts. He sees his Son on the horizon and he runs to him. Now we were talking about this in the ABS a few weeks ago. Do you know that in Arab cultures, they had the hardest time translating that verse. They used every word but run. Because it was unfathomable and ultimately shameful for an old, distinguished man to get, grab up his robe and run. It was humiliating. The shame he was taking upon himself. But what he was doing, he was taking the prodigal son's shame, deserving of him, upon himself willing to suffer that humiliation for him because of what he had done. And the people are no longer talking about the Son, but the Father. And it's a picture of God's grace that He is making this forgiveness available to us. That He takes His robe up and He says, I'm going to humiliate myself for you. For you. It's grace. It's grace. It costs God everything. It gives everything because it costs Him everything. Look at verse 13 with me, please. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possessions who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. But looking and focusing on verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. The word that is used here means to expect, to wait for, to eagerly wait for. This happy occasion, this blessed occasion, the appearance of Jesus. He's writing about the second coming of Christ when Jesus will appear. Why? Because that's when we will be freed forever from the very presence of sin. We've been freed from the penalty. Right now we're freed from the power. And then we'll be freed from the very presence of sin. We'll be freed from the penalty of the sin, the power of the sin, and be freed from the very presence of sin. What does that involve? It involves the return of our Savior. Return of our Savior. Paul looked forward to the second coming of Christ. He lived his life in expectation. And so should we. He looked at the return of Jesus as a motivating factor for his Christian life in the present. Something we often overlook. Seeing that as a motivating factor for our life. Responding, looking forward to it with joy. People today don't do that. They have misguided expectations. Only what this world has to offer. We look forward to Jesus' second coming, to seeing Him face to face. Have you thought of that, what it would be like to see Jesus face to face? I remember just getting, when I, on my wedding day, and I was looking to see my bride. And to see her, I was blown away. So gorgeous. So amazing. I mean, I felt like my wife was a gift of grace, and I didn't deserve it. That's for sure. The longing to see Jesus is safe. You know, it's amazing to me. I watched a special this past week on North Korea by National Geographic. I don't know how much you're familiar with North Korea. Uh, it's one of the most mysterious and closed countries in the entire world, ruled by a megalomaniac 
dictator who keeps everybody at his own whim. While he, I mean, he denies everyone else so many privileges and just basic medical care while he just gorges himself on intricate delicacies and wines and film all over the world. And there's the story how, uh, I mean, many Americans aren't even allowed in. And if you are ever allowed in on a visa, you're only allowed by 10 days. And then you have a guard or an escort with you at all times, one or two. And it, in this uh, documentary by the National Geographic depicts this one uh, Nepalese eye surgeon whose goal was to go into North Korea and perform these eye surgeries because the uh, malnutrition is so high in North Korea that small children are getting cataracts in their eyes. They can't see. And not just children, adults. There's this huge population of those that are blind. So he only has 10 days in a primitive hospital that they had to have different equipment shipped in uh, with the permission of the North Korean government, by the way. And his goal was to perform 1,000 eye surgeries in 10 days. Astonishing. And he meets his goal, amazingly. And the most astonishing thing about the video is this, or the, the documentary is this, at the end of the 10 days, all of the patients are sitting there like you are now, so they all have patches over their eyes. And he's taking the patches off so they can see for the first time. Now remember, the reason they are this way is because their dictator, or they call the supreme leader, won't allow them to have basic food and nutrition. And they take the, the gauze off of this one elderly woman, hadn't seen in years. And the first thing she wants to see is a picture of the supreme leader. And she stands up and does the most remarkable and most horrible thing in my mind. She starts to praise him as if he's a god. And he gave her her sight back. And all of them do the same thing. All of them start praising the supreme leader. And I'm like, this man has done nothing but been horrible to them. He's never done anything to bless them. He's the reason they are blind. And it's just horrendous and so misguided. And abhorrent to my mind as I watched it. And I thought, I would, I would want to see his face so I could spit on it. See, and in that country, though, to speak out against the supreme leader means that not only you, but your entire family goes into a concentration camp. If you escape, they're there forever. Your family, your relatives, that's why they all talk. They will do nothing but praise him. And, and one of the, the people that was there interviewed, and they said, can the supreme leader do anything wrong? And they didn't even have language. They had no idea what she was talking about. They couldn't even fathom in their mind that he would do anything wrong. They were so brainwashed. It was abhorrent to me. Yet, Jesus, his coming, his appearing, we will see him one day face to face. And it's not going to be a lie. It's going to be the ultimate joy. See, what gets me about them is that they were physically blind and then they got their physical sight, but they were still spiritually blind. See, I was like the man in, in the book of John. He says, I was blind, but now I see. Not only could he physically see, but he could spiritually see. And many of us, though, are living in spiritual blindness, not seeing this grace that is so readily apparent and, and available to us now. And see, one day that grace, the object, the one who made grace even available to us, will appear. I love how the, the book of 1 John words it. In First John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. It will not just be some image on the wall. It will be the revelation of God's awesome, saving, sovereign power. So we look forward to not only this revelation of Christ, or our Savior, but the redemption of His saints. Today we will be redeemed. Look at verse 14. Who gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ gave Himself willingly. As the book of John chapter 10, verse 18 says, that Jesus is saying, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. He has ransomed us. He has paid the price to free us. He has given us this amazing feat. We look forward to His second coming, the return of the Savior, because we shall have our redemption completed. We will be rid of these sinful bodies and will be entirely redeemed from all lawlessness and completely pure, purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. See, this grace is so amazing, and I'm going to wrap this up here, is that it enables forgiveness. It keeps us firm in the faith. It enables us to fight. And you know what? It never fails. But many of us, though, are like those people within Babette's feet. We're sitting at the table, refusing to enjoy what God has given us. Our senses dull, thinking we are somehow earning God's favor by, by not living the life that God intended. You know, I, I look at grace as a balancing pole. Looking at walking along the tightrope of the Christian life. Legalism is on the cavern of one side and license is on the cavern of the other. And the only thing to balance us is grace. Grace balances. Grace keeps us from going to become legalists and finding, uh, God, or trying to earn God's blessing and favor. And license keeps us from indulging in all types of, of sins. Or grace keeps us from indulging in license. Grace is the balancer of the Christian life. And without grace, we fall. We need grace to balance. Have you been a partaker of this amazing grace? That's what's so amazing is that it can save the worst of sinners. You know, it doesn't matter what you've done. And you know, everyone in this building right now is a sinner. Everyone. There's, I, I know that, and I've said this before, after interacting with many of you, you have PhDs in all kinds of sin. And I mean, some of you, I mean, you're world-class sinners. You hear like the, the stratosphere. But you know, God's grace went even further than your sin and your rebellion. And He brought you out of it. And you are now vessels of grace and praise. God changed your life. And I love hearing those stories. I love hearing your testimony. It just encourages my heart. And to see how God has transformed you. I mean, some of you, I'm amazed. And, and, and others of you, you may not have had that bad testimony, but you are a recipient of the grace of God Throughout, working throughout the generations of your family. That's a huge praise to God that you didn't have to go into that decadent lifestyle. That God kept you from it. 
by giving you godly parents and godly households. Others didn't have that or had it and rebelled against it. You know, God's grace doesn't matter what background you came from. doesn't matter if you're the first Christian in your entire family or you're the, the thousand. His grace can save everybody and it's available to everyone. Amen. And all you need to do is repent and believe. You know, talking about grace as a present, you have a Christmas tree, you know. You go to your house, where do the presents go? Under the tree. And you know, every one of us, in order to get that present, have to stoop to get it. And every one of us have to humble ourselves in order to get God's present. We all have to kneel. We all have to bow and accept it humbly and repent. And it's available to everybody. If you're here and you don't have Jesus Christ in your life, ask Him to save you. Whoever believes in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's it. That's it. Believe. Jesus says, repent and believe. Turn from it. Because if you believe it, you're going to turn from it. And you're going to be a recipient of this wonderful, majestic grace of God. He will save you. He will cleanse you from the, I mean, the very penalty of the sin, your sin, the power of sin now, and the presence of sin in the future. And you will spend eternity with Him at whose right hand are pleasures forever and ever, according to the song. May we all, may we all bask in this grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, that we might have life in you. Lord, grace is such a radical term. Lord, we've, we've talked about so many things today, so many high and mighty things, but yet we know that it's so simple that a child can understand it. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be really smart. You don't have to be uh, a genius. Lord, it doesn't matter what station of life that we're at. Your grace is available. We don't have to have led the best life. As a matter of fact, many of us have lived the worst life. But we know that your grace abounds. And that Christ came to save sinners, even us. Lord, I pray that there, there's someone here today who doesn't know who you are, who have not, has, has not submitted to you, has not asked you to save them, that you might place your Holy Spirit's conviction upon their life, that they might repent of their sins and believe in your Son. All of us have to believe. All of us have to humble ourselves. Lord, help us to understand who you are and what you've done and what you've made available to us. And Lord, let them call out to you in faith, asking you to save them, and you will save them. So Lord, glorify yourself in our church. Help us all to be trained to renounce ungodliness in these worldly tasks and to live these self-controlled, upright, and holy lives. Lord, you've made us zealous for good works. We should have zeal to do these things, not that these works save us. Faith in you has saved us, but now we desire to enjoy knowing what we have been saved from. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you. We ask you to continue to work in our midst as you are already doing. We pray this in Jesus' name.